Hello, welcome to the Drive the Stem podcast. Today's guest is Eric Hartman. Eric is an ISAF alumni. He received third prize of $1,000 in translational medicine at ISAF 2018. He examined whether it was possible to coat a surgical suture material with a specific type of AMP, antimicrobial peptide, and whether it gained an antibacterial effect. He is now studying biomedical engineering and biomedicine at Lund University. He is engaged in the global competition IGEM, or International Genetically Engineered Machine, and launched an international initiative as part of the IGEM work and outreach called Synthetics. The goal is ensuring prosperity in the world of biotechnology. He was also working at Ungaforskare as part of the Stockholm International Youth Science Seminar and the Nobel Festivities. So I'm pumped to have this interview and welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, for sure. I think that when we met in Sweden, you've mentioned that you were at Intel ISAP, but I want to now dig deeper a little bit and ask you upon that, where did the inspiration stem from to invest in the field of translational medicine? Well, translational medicine is kind of the branch of biology and medicine that is kind of intertwined with also the human practices and kind of trying to actually develop some kind of product. Uh, so for me, I'm really interested in science overall. Uh, I like all kinds of science. I love physics, I love biology, but medicine is generally a bit closer to my heart. Uh, but I'm also kind of somewhat of a visionary, good at looking at the bigger perspective. And that's really what you're doing with translational medicine. You're saying, well, we let's develop a product and see how it can affect the society um, and how it can have kind of an impact uh, more than just looking at what kind of molecular structures are involved in some kind of mechanism. But that's why I kind of chose to uh, to do my research in that field. Yes, and it's also more personalized when you, as you just you mentioned, that you are a visionary and you have a bigger goal or purpose you are working towards in your research that just creates you know a special effect. Exactly what you were saying is that you are working for a greater impact. And I know that your work involves antibiotic resistance and invasion of superbacteria. So can you expand upon what those terms mean and what kind of dangers can they create today or in the upcoming decades? Well, antibiotic resistance is really a mechanism that some bacteria have developed uh, with the help of evolution um, that makes them less susceptible to antibiotics, basically. Now we have different strains of antibiotics, uh, the first one being penicillin developed more than 100 years ago, but since then uh, there has been new antibiotics developed uh, around one every 10 years or so. But what has happened is that because these are generally uh, very specific and have kind of a specific pattern of mechanisms, bacteria can readily produce some kind of mechanism to, uh, to kind of defend themselves from them. And that's where the superbacteria come from. When a bacteria has developed all of the mechanisms and where no antibiotics no longer work, and that's really causing a kind of a huge problem and will lead in the future definitely towards some kind of epidemic. Uh, today, I think about 700,000 people per year die due to the fact that they won't be able to be treated with antibiotics due to some resistance. Uh, but I think it was estimated uh, that in 2050, uh, that number should rise to about 10 million per year, making it more deadly than cancer. Uh, so really, there is a growing epidemic and that we really haven't kind of heard of before the 20th century. 
So in the 20th century, these antibiotics were introduced to society. And since then, we've all become accustomed to having, uh, you know, this easy way of just killing bacteria. And we haven't really had a problem with infections. So our society is really accustomed to, to being protected from all of these bacteria. And once we're not, our society will kind of have this shock. And that's when I think that we will notice that the epidemic is actually spreading uh, when super bacteria become part of your everyday life and you won't be able to treat with antibiotics anymore. Totally. And it's just crazy to think about after penicillin in the course of a hundred years, what could go down. And now these super bacteria kind of represent the dangerous villains of microbiology. And it's no wonder why the World Health Organization and several partnerships are being made because we want to look for new antibiotics or revive current antibiotics that are no longer sufficient to treat diseases or to care about post-operative infections, which is also related to the research. And we want to accelerate the entry of new antibiotic drugs. So that's definitely something that will impact us, just as you were mentioning the, I think, the CDC's um, data upon superbacteria. And, you know, when someone hears the term superbacteria, it's kind of like the marketing term, but it really creates that dangerous effect. Yeah, a really a, a huge problem has really been the overuse of antibiotics in the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. That we're using antibiotics preemptively, uh, trying to prevent uh, infection from happening. But actually, in most cases, it isn't really necessary, and we're really just contributing to the spread of antibiotic resistance. But also the fact that bacteria are pretty, uh, like for lack of a better word, they are pretty clever. We're finding new mechanisms in which they share these antibiotic resistance genes uh, between themselves. And uh, there's really some, they have kind of, it, it almost feels like they have a life of their own when they're trying to combat these antibiotics. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> they're faster and faster uh, than, than we could imagine ever before. They are very smart and they implement this out, outside of the box or outside of the membrane, I guess, <laughs> thinking yeah. to prevent us from curing these infections and diseases. But still, science is evolving and technology is evolving. So you used AMPs, antimicrobial peptides. So I want to know how do these novel uh, agents function and how did you implement them in your research? Because that's really interesting. Well, antimicrobial peptides is really our oldest defense system. It's been in microbes several hundreds of millions of years ago uh, and was developed really, really early. Uh, and it was really a way of defending against other bacteria and other kind of, uh, yeah, other bacteria mostly. Um, so because they were developed so early, they're very, very unspecific. Uh, in relation to antibiotic resistance that are really, really... Uh, really, really specific. They can target either gram-positive bacteria, gram-negative bacteria. They're, they might even be specific to a certain strain. But antimicrobial peptides, because they were developed so early, as long as they notice that it's some kind of bacteria, they generally attack. Um, so they function via different mechanisms. There's a broad spectrum of different antimicrobial peptides using vastly different mechanisms to try to combat these bacteria. And that's really why they have such a prosperous future because a bacteria can't be immune to every single antimicrobial peptide because there's too many of them. There aren't enough mechanisms to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. But the peptide I was using uh, is called TCP25 
just a, a name that signals that it ha- is it comes from a protein called uh, crumbone and then it's 25 amino acids long so it's really really short if you look at larger proteins um, and the way it functions is actually that it mechanically breaks down the cell membrane uh, so the bacteria just the membrane breaks and it can't sustain life anymore but what, what it also does is that it blocks something called endotoxin so endotoxin is this uh, kind of a, a poison that a bacteria or that some bacteria leave after them uh, when they die and uh, that's often why it becomes sick because of infectious diseases is because of these endotoxins and they can be very very dangerous um, one type of endotoxin i believe is is the botox uh, so the botox that you use to get rid of wrinkles is actually from a, from a bacteria that is a, a, a poison for your nerves oh. and if you, if you get a lot of it in you, then it can definitely shut down your entire nervous system. Uh, but they have found that they can use it as, uh, as you know, getting rid of wrinkles to make the face move less and so on. The TCP25 uh, peptide does it, that it, it blocks some receptors uh, collect, connected to these uh, endotoxins so that the endotoxins stop work. They're inhibited. They're effective, is effectively inhibited. So that's kind of what's so interesting about these antimicrobial peptides is that they're designed in a way that's way smarter than how we can design antibiotics through evolution for millions and millions of years uh, and they've been kind of perfected in a way. That's so cool. I really like the idea how you had the inspiration from EMPs and how you implemented in your research, especially because just as you were telling the audience that it does not only disrupt the cell membrane, which is hosts external protection against antibiotics but it also has an effect on antitoxins so it has these two faceted mechanism against this villain and also that you were mentioning receptors if it breaks down the cell membrane i know that perhaps not in most of the pathogens but in e coli and pseudomonasorginosa there is this so-called identified drug pump that creates antimicrobial resistance that it also disrupts its system as well. So it's kind of like the super agent, if you say so. Yeah, and combining it with the fact that there are so many of them, where there are actually some efforts in using AI and deep learning to try to recognize what kind of combinations of amino acids are antimicrobial, just to find out how many agents, how many antimicrobial peptides there are. And right now we're definitely up into the tens of thousands of different agents. Uh, So... I think that's a really a good way to use the nature's kind of innate defense to, to say that, okay, so evolution has been acting for millions of years. Uh, we couldn't possibly, during a short period of time, be as smart as it. So let's try to facilitate this work and use it uh, for our own benefit. Uh, so that's really, I think that's a really good idea uh, that's being implemented more and more into, into medicine and all types of research now. Yes, and it accelerates itself for a greater purpose. And also because you used it on a surgical tool. I was wondering when I was reading it, we know about post-operative infections, especially in developing countries, which um, does not only mean health costs, but longer hospital stays and the use of antibiotics. So can you expand on that with what kind of bacteria species were involved in your research and how they are related to wound infections and post-operative infections in the surgical unit. Yeah, sure. So post-operative infections is really a branch of infections that 
is hugely problematic, especially for hospitals and for the economic burden in a, in a country. So once you have uh, an operation, there's a certain risk that you, um, that you have further complications in the form of post-operative infection, that is, you won't get infected. Um, and really, in no country, even the best country, would there be a 0% chance of you receiving a post-operative infection, because how sterile, how sterile your equipment is really doesn't matter, because bacteria are everywhere, and if it, ha- if it so happens that the bacteria that gets into your wound is of a, of a certain nasty type, you will get a post-operative infection. So even in Sweden, it, which has really good healthcare, it lies around a 5% chance. Wow. Uh, now, of course, this uh, really increases when you go into countries uh, where the hospitals aren't as sterile or perhaps not as aware of the pathogenic effects. And it can go up to, you know, really, really high numbers. And the problem is that this often leads to complications that are even more problematic than the first use of an operation. Um, and of course, it, it prolongs the hospital stay and it requires further cost. So what has happened during the years is that people have noticed that, okay, we don't want post-operative infections, so let's treat with antibiotics before we operate. That way we can kind of preemptively uh, try to reduce the amount of post-operative infections. But again, in countries like Sweden, where 5% leads to post-operative infections, you, for the other 95% of the operations, you're using antibiotics for no purpose at all. Mm. So that's really why I wanted to get into trying to solve the problem of post-operative infections. And I did so by attaching my protein, my little peptide, TCP25, to sutures. So the kind of thread that you use when operating, um, in hopes that if it's embedded in the suture, and it then has some kind of release mechanism from the suture, that the need for antibiotics will no longer be needed. Uh, and that way you can reduce the amount of antibiotics needed uh, for you know, trying to preemptively reduce the amount of post-operative infections and potentially save some lives, definitely, uh, but also a lot of money and a lot of problems with the infrastructure due to a lot of prolonged hospital stay. The change in the surgical side and how it's related to infections has like more impacts in regarding to socioeconomic status and also how to treat these infections. It it is definitely a problem that requires a solution. It is real cool that you created something that, not just something, but the uh, PCP25 is a mechanism that can create such an effect. And especially because these are the common healthcare associated infections in low and middle income countries. So congratulations upon your work. Thank you so much. If someone is interested in microbiology, I just put it in a bracket because I know that I've had like two or three microbiology interviews, so the gang is growing now too. You worked on Staphylo aureus, right? And coli? Yes, aureus, E. coli, yeah. Uh, I also worked on Pseudomonas aureus. Uh, and yeah, those were the three most prevalent bacteria I used. And basically because they're the most prevalent in post-operative infections. Um, and I got some really cool uh, photographs, actually, of the of the sutures with the bacteria on them. And actually watching how the membrane degrades just really shows that the mechanism is working. Have you 
posted this research work somewhere so is it available for interview to users such as us <laughs> it's, it's really not available yet uh, because I was working in this lab and they are currently stacked with a lot of work but they are going to come up with an article uh, and I will be of course a, a co-writer in that article uh, so I will I will tell you when it's out okay keep me updated I'm interested in it <laughs> to mention that this research work you submitted is to at ISAF so I gotta touch on this part. What does the ISAF experience represent to you? Really, for me personally, it really represents a boost of confidence. Uh, because prior to my, my research, uh, you know, just going to school and doing tests isn't really, isn't really a fun way to do science for me. And my, my confidence, the confidence I had in myself probably wasn't very high. Um, and then I started to compete. I did this research project as you know, kind of an, an escape from school, and trying to uh, trying to apply what I think is fun about science to something that you can actually you can actually grasp and you can actually apply to reality. Um, and then with the projects, of course, I, I competed in, in my first in my national uh, national competition of for young scientists, uh, and which then got me to ISEF. And I think that. That kind of boost in self-confidence really kind of made a way for what I'm doing today. Um, but overall, I think competitions like ISEF and other, other competitions within the realm of science really has a way of reaching out with scientific work. It often, you know, if you're, if you're a national winner, it often says so in the newspaper. Your friends ask about it. Um, your, your school knows about it. And a lot of people get interested in kind of in science and in what young people can do in science. Uh, just because not that much is done in, in school, at least not in Sweden. Of course, science is a huge part of school, but not really the scientific reasoning that I interpret as, you know, true science. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also this personal thing, you know, uh, making contacts, get, getting friends, noticing that there's more people like you, um, and this, this self-motivation that, okay, I can... I can continue with this and this can actually be something I can work with in the future. I think that's just what ISEF represents to, to me definitely. Absolutely. Just as you were saying that doing research was like escaping from school to you, I think many teachers wish that escaping from school meant doing that work. But it's real cool that you wanted to translate those, literally translate those abstract ideas that you acquired in school and do your own work. I think that these competitions are so great for fostering your relationships and being exposed in a way that um, teaches you a lot of skills, but also widens your perspective. So ISAP is a cool place to be. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You are not only involved in that aspect, but you are part of the IGEM. So first of all, could you expand on the proposed goals of the initiative Synthetics that I've mentioned in the intro? Yeah, sure. So Synthetics is, is basically an initiative where questions and dilemmas about the future of the, this field of new era biotechnology or also more specifically synthetic biology are posed. So what, what actually drove us uh, at IGEM Lund to, to do this initiative and to start this initiative uh, was actually that we're doing research on some, some uh, probiotics and we're genetically modifying some probiotics and we wanted to know, well, can we get these probiotics out into the market? Mm. So what actually first happened was that I started looking into the laws 
uh, and the different laws governing synthetic biology and genetic modification in the EU and in the US, uh, mostly actually. Um, and what I quickly kind of realized was that these laws aren't really prepared for the future and they aren't catching up with the future. Um, especially when a competition like iGEM, which is this international competition hosted by the, hosted by the MIT just for synthetic biology, um, they, at iGEM you come up with so many ideas. There's more than, uh, than 5,000 people there all doing research in the realm of synthetic biology, all coming up essentially with products that could be released into the market. But unfortunately, the legislation wasn't there. So firstly, uh, our idea was to actually come up with some legislation and some, some law proposals uh, that could be implemented in the EU. Uh, but we quickly realized that we were kind of uh, naive in thinking that us, a couple of engineering or science students, uh, could do something that's the work of, of you know, a, a law law master students. And uh, we had to kind of take take a step back and say, okay, maybe this isn't the best way to use our resources and our time. Instead, let's look at something something else, something more kind of fundamental. And that was the ethics and the morals of what should we do with synthetic biology. That's really the precursor to a law uh, before you say, okay, this is what you can't do, this is what you're allowed to do, is to, to say, well, what should we do? Mm-hmm. So that's really what started uh, Synthetics, um, and that's really the idea behind the whole initiative. An awesome initiative. It proposes a future framework, which is now not established, because just as you were expanding on it, we are kind of in the gray zone of how to determine um, in terms of genetic engineering, and that involves a lot of fields, enhancing someone's cognitive abilities or introducing new species. But it's like the ground where it needs restriction, but in a way Way that also fosters scientific research and advancement for a greater purpose. It's definitely essential to introduce ethics because without it we would be like beasts fooling around and there would be no governing law that kind of defines it borders. So that proposes the, the question I wanted to ask you that could you tell the audience or share with the audience that why is it so essential to introduce ethics into the world of synthetic biology and genetic engineering as a whole? Well, I think uh, you can kind of uh, kind of draw the, some kind of simile between synthetic biology and the work that's uh, and genetic engineering and the work that's in AI right now. So AI uh, has become quite obvious that it will have a huge impact on our future. That's really the same thing with synthetic biology, is that synthetic biology will have a huge impact on our future, not only on our future healthcare and medicine, but on our future lives. As we kind of create these bacterial machines, these microbial machines or, or whatever it is, they will not just be used in healthcare, they will be used everywhere. Um, but what also uh, is similar between AI and synthetic biology and genetic engineering is that we don't. We have, we've never faced such a technology before, and they're very fundamental technologies. In AI, we're creating essentially cognition. We're essentially creating a mind. Now you can debate on whether that's a conscious mind or not, but we're creating some kind of complicated cognition. While in synthetic biology and genetic engineering, we're tampering with the most fundamental recipe of life. We're tampering with the genes that encode for what seemingly is everything, your cognition, your uh, 
whether or not you're psychotic, whether or not you're em emphatic, and whether or not you're uh, good-hearted, or whether not you're whether you have a heart of stone. It's basically all of your preferences and all of your motivations in life have some kind of interplay with genes. So tampering with them, we really need to make sure that we are aware of what we're doing and that we are aware of what we want to do. And that's why you need to introduce ethics and philosophy into the world of synthetic biology. Because if we leave this up to researchers, unfortunately for many of us researchers, I think the world wouldn't be the best place to live in in the future. I think a lot of research is driven by curiosity and not uh, perhaps cautiousness. And cautiousness is really key when dealing with these kind of fundamental um, fundamental building blocks of life uh, to be cautious so that we don't take a step too far, we don't take a step in the wrong direction, that we stay on the right path. Because frankly, the path seems quite narrow. There are many outcomes which seem detrimental and we seem unfortunately like it would end all life on earth but there are some paths which lead to enormous prosperity and enormous gain uh, for humanity overall and for life overall so that's really why you need to consider uh, thoroughly every single step of the way yes absolutely i 100 percent agree it's like we should enable scientists to implement their curiosity but in a way that it's like a strategic whimsy so to speak <laughs> Um, because we want to avoid those um, horrible outcomes using bioweapons or creating such effects in society that does not uh, only alter their genetic makeup, but that has long-term effects. For example, I think one of the most concerning parts about synthetic biology is that most of us are familiar with is creating these superhumans or upgrading their human abilities. And that was also one of the discussion uh, themes at science program when it was also about, you know, ethics in the world of uh, genetic engineering. So how do you view this view that there might be parents who, who want to increase their children's cognitive abilities. It's not for the medical, but for the non-medical ends. I think the possible good outcomes are amazing. Uh, imagine if we had full, but full kind of mapping of our genome and we knew what genes that we wanted to kind of overexpress and we wanted to uh, and we wanted to express maybe high high IQ, high cognitive ability, um, to make everyone you know kind of good to each other, and to make everyone have empathy, and make everyone have understanding, and make everyone have some kind of perspective on the world. And all of this, of course, could be tampered with in some ways with genetic engineering. Um, but the problem is that our current global infrastructure. Uh, being divided up into countries, being divided up into governments and into religions and into into all of these groups, uh, alongside our evolutionary brain, which is currently viewing everyone basically as an us or a them, uh, we cannot really kind of make get rid of our kind of subjective biases just like that. Uh, those uh, kind of parameters make it difficult to apply. Uh, these kind of genetic enhancement, especially uh, for, for example, in children, in a in a good way on a global level. There's capitalism would make it so that 
only the rich have it and you know it, it just seems like a very hard thing to deal with at the moment the way the world currently looks but if we were to get a good infrastructure in place um, to and to a point where we can say that okay we can we can provide this this way of genetically modifying children to everyone in a ethical manner well that's that's absolutely great and i don't think there's any any downsides to kind of t- trying to tamper some but of course as we get further into research and as we know more about our genes we might we might notice that some pathways going down some pathways is not really going down the right direction but i think there is some possibility that it will it will work in the future but it definitely wouldn't work now Yes, definitely. Just as you mentioned that we are divided by countries, just because we are divided by just looking at a map, uh, it would create these two socioeconomic classes, those who have an access to genetic engineering and those who do not have. There are articles that say that, okay, it might create this dangerous outcome if um, they could for example, choose a child's musical talent and athletic prowess and designer children would never be fully free. But the other side of the argument that none of us chooses his or her genetic inheritance. So I think there is a lot to contemplate on this issue and there are definitely beneficial ways to consider genetic engineering if we are talking about muscle dystrophy or Alzheimer's disease where we could reverse age-related memory loss. So... It's definitely what you were saying, just to define the borders is key to know where it should lead us. Saying like higher IQ, there's something very funny I found, or just that it actually happened. Um, there's a course I'm taking on bioethics, but in terms of reproductive technologies, an online course at Harvard. And there was a story that the first America's sperm bank opened in 1980, and they were dedicated to improving the world's germplasm by collecting the sperm of Nobel Prize winning scientists. Yeah, I've heard of this. It's actually pretty funny. Yes. <laughs> and it's just crazy to think about that they wanted to, you know, reproduce with women of high intelligence to breed these super smart babies, but they actually closed yeah. down. So that's the end of the story for now. Some some steps are being taken in uh, in China as well. They're doing they're trying to map all the genes that has to do with IQ. Um, and they're getting children with very high IQ to, to do these IQ tests and trying to find some, some, some similarities between their genes. So, I mean, we're getting there. The problem is how to apply it globally. Yeah, I, I've heard about those news as well. And it's just definitely not a thing that is in the gray zone, but appears on national headlines and it interferes with new technologies. So I think that's why the work at synthetics is so crucial because in the course of history if we're looking at nations the most successful ones were those nations who are prepared for the future and who planned ahead so i think that's the the key thing in regards to the future what is one really good like promising and worst case of scenario you can envision in terms of synthetic biology or overall well i think more inclusively in synthetic biology and genetic engineering if we are discussing this topic? I think a world where genetic diseases are completely eliminated, where we have genetic engi- we have genetically engineered away any prejudice towards any ethnicity or any way of thinking, 
and where everyone can view each other in kind of a unified way. Um, and this could potentially lead to, you know, instead of having countries and states, we would just have Earth or potentially even have other planets as well and view ourselves as a unison. I think that's one of the uh, most kind of prosperous way of thinking about genetic engineering to say that they can actually remove prejudice and unify us as a, as a, as a race or as a, as a human race. Um, but of course, the worst case scenario, I think we've already somewhat witnessed in the field of eugenics that was prevalent in the beginning of the um, 20th century, uh, especially in, uh, in countries like the US, where they had these different colonies for people who were considered to be mentally retarded or mentally disabled. Um, due to, and, and, they and they would castrate them and so on and so on, and all of these horrible atrocities were going on just because people thought that genes mattered uh, in a deterministic and in a kind of reductionist fashion. Uh, and this would then lead on to spread itself toward, of course, Germany, where um, kind of the Holocaust really had this pseudo-factual this base of eugenics. Um, and I think expanding on that vision is to say that we have this kind of one homogenous gene pool where there's no one, everyone is the same, everybody has the same genetic makeup and, um, and there's really no humanity left uh, because of the fact that we would consider some genes to be of higher value than others. That would be, definitely be one of the worst case scenarios. Yes, creating these super classes and having those detrimental effects. But it's cool to imagine a society where there are no genetic diseases whatsoever, there is no sickle cell anemia, just to name a few. But just as the perspective you mentioned in terms of totalitarianism, in, in terms of the Nazi and then the communist regime as well. I think that's pretty horrifying and we've seen the losses. So we are kind of acknowledge what it could happen, but what happened in the past and we can build from past happenings and to implement it in the future, it would be the best to eliminate the creation of a world like Gotika or the Brave New World where, you know, they brought these uh, genetic testings that determined your job, your wealth, your status in life. So I think that it's not only your genetic makeup, but what you bring out of it, like human achievement and so yeah. forth. Um, and something that's perhaps even more atrocious uh, is the fact that we can use synthetic biology to develop um, kind of these super super viruses and spread epidemics all across the world. And what's kind of horrible is that it's quite easy to do, uh, at least in, in theory, because just because viruses are so simple and they have a simple makeup. Um, and the more we know about genes, the more we can kind of say, well, let's combine some type of airborne property in, in some operon and some genes with a very deadly one uh, in another operon. And you get this horrible, deadly airborne virus that's potentially not really too hard to do in your own basement laboratory. It's like the DIY uh, research. Exactly. Uh, I mean, most, most research in synthetic biology is considered to be do-it-yourself, DIY. Um, you know, it's it's quite easy to be outside of a university faculty and order these kinds of genes uh, and kind of make yourself seem like a legitimate researcher while not. So that's that's definitely another way of 
way of view viewing a horrible outcome. I know that in the US you do not have to have uh, a degree or like a medical license to be a plastic surgeon. So mm. you can be an anesthesiologist but you can still perform these surgeries. So it's like you don't have the qualification to do that work and we've seen in photos that can create very detrimental outcomes and mm. I think that it can be still applied here that it's one thing that you have the tacit knowledge that you gain from experience but it's also good if you've learned those things in a more kind of restricted environment where you really acquire the basics of science and how to implement them. I mean, I'm a do-it-yourself. I don't have a degree yet. I'm, and I'm mixed with tampering with the genes in, in the bacteria. So, But I'm you are at university, so you have a qualification. Don't say that. Oh, yeah. True, true, true. But I, I'm not, I'm not a, a legitimate kind of licensed researcher. I don't have a doctor. I, don't, I haven't finished my master. So, I mean, it's, it's potentially could be pretty simple uh, to kind of fool someone and say that, well, I'm a researcher, uh, but you don't actually have to show any proof of it. Yeah, like the basement research where, where no one can check on you. But, you know, you're, you're working in an environment where, where you have, like, people who give feedback on your work, right? Yeah, yes, of course, yes. Yes, so that's, that's like the two ends of the spectrum, but definitely yeah. it can create dangers. You mentioned the project because you are traveling to Boston in November to compete at iGEM with an innovative project. So I want to mention this too because you are genetically modifying a probiotic bacterium which can accumulate toxic metals. So can you give us a little bit of info on that work? Sure. So um, our team during our brainstorm session, uh, we kind of get, got stuck on this uh, view of toxic metals or they're in, in more common mouth, they're called heavy metals, which is kind of mis misleading, uh, which is why we call them toxic metals. Not the rock band. Yeah, exactly. And um, they're not particularly heavy, so there's no really reason to call them heavy. Uh, but anyways, um, we wanted to kind of get rid of that problem uh, because it's really a profound problem everywhere. Uh, in Sweden, we have lots of lots of uh, metals in our soil, uh, and we get them through just eating what we grow. But we also get them through through water, and especially in, um, in fish as well. We, we eat a lot of fish in Sweden. Um, but here the problem is really mild, and in countries that are closer to some some chains of mountain, like closer to Himalaya, uh, like Bangladesh, they get a huge amount of arsenic in their water, um, and they really has detrimental effects on your body um, because these kind of toxic metals they mimic uh, other vital molecules, so they kind of get into your metabolic pathways. And then they just accumulate and they disable your metabolic processes. Uh, so really, you can definitely die from uh, uh, toxic metal poisoning. Uh, but they can also have some more subtle effects, like uh, kind of making you fatigued or even decreasing your IQ if you get some accumulation in your brain and uh, your neurons degenerate. So it's really a huge problem. And we wanted to see how we could tackle this. So our first idea was, of course, in, in water filtration to kind of go to the, to the root of the problem. Okay, so obviously people need to drink water, so let's clean the water. The problem is that there is a lot of water out there. Uh, and really, uh, a cleansing process or kind of a filtration process isn't really too viable if you look in an economic way and if you look in a global way. Um, so instead, we chose to go with solving the problem once the water has gotten into your body. So we looked at using a probiotic bacteria. Uh, we're using a strain of E. coli called E. coli Nista, which you can actually just buy as a probiotic today. 
And we looked at different pathways that some bacteria have uh, with dealing with these different metals. So bacteria have been on Earth longer than us, and they have, have to uh, have dealt with these metals longer than us. So they actually have developed some pathways for different metals. Uh, and we kind of wanted to take different pathways and put them into E. coli Nisla to make it accumulate as much uh, toxic metals as possible. Now, because we're limited on time and we're limited on, on our uh, space in the lab and so on, uh, we decided to focus on arsenic and lead. Um, and we're developing pathways that make the bacteria basically absorb these metals as a sponge, but then also so trap them in different proteins uh, and make it so that once the bacteria uh, leave your body in the normal fashion through your feces, um, they will bring the metals with them. So they basically absorb them instead of you, uh, and we're solving the problem that way instead. So uh, that's that's the base of our research, uh, and I'm, I'm actually really excited about it. For sure, no doubt. It's fascinating to think about what these little creatures are capable to do and how you can take their mechanism of dealing with these toxic metals in a world of, you know, genetically modifying it, but for a greater purpose. Because I know that, for example, pregnant women are not allowed to consume as many fish because of the metal mercury that is found in fish. So it can have like a great inner impact because they might be able to get this bacteria in their system and flush out all those toxic metals that would eventually have a disruptive effect on the fetus. Exactly. So uh, especially the case with methylmercury is really well known because it's really known that if you're pregnant, you shouldn't eat fish. And that's because methylmercury, uh, methylmercury is really created by microbial activity on the bottom of the ocean. And then it's accumulated in fish. Now when you eat the fish, it passes through your placenta, through protein transporters, uh, and then it passes onto the fetus and it actually accumulates in the brain and hinders some neural development. So that's really a well-known uh, kind of phenomenon. Um, but there's also a similar effect with other metals like lead and arsenic. Um, and those are just, there are known, uh, like for example in Sweden, we constantly get told that we should you know, wash our rice uh, uh, to get rid of the arsenic. But there's not really that much that can be done about it. So we try, we're trying to find this novel mechanism. And again, we're using kind of it's it's a theme uh, it's a theme throughout my work is that trying to use something that nature has already evolved and just use it to your own benefit and uh, say that just be humble about it and say I'm not smarter than a millions year millions of years of evolution and uh, let's just use what we got instead. Yes, it has established patterns and it's great to build or. Uh, start from those building blocks and create something so cool. I think there's like a Japanese tradition that you should wash your rice 13 times before you eat it. <laughs> but I think it's more like a myth. Um, yeah, water cannot do so much about uh, mercury um, accumulation, but your bacterium can do. And I think, I hope uh, it will do in the future. I'm really cheering you guys on in the Boston competition. Yeah, sure. In this week's STEM shout out, I'm promoting the Lund iGEM team. If you want to read about their work and who they are compromised of and so forth, check out their blog and synthetics as well, of which I'm glad to be part of. 
There is a Google questionnaire you can fill out on some of the most crucial questions concerning synthetic biology. It only takes 5 to 10 minutes, but you are taking part in answering some of the questions the future may hold. If you want to go the extra mile and share your viewpoint, just reach out because there is a more detailed test for you. So I'll leave all the links down below in the info box. Don't forget that now we are available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, besides SoundCloud. If you like this episode or any previous ones, post them tagging the Drop the Stem podcast on Insta and using the hashtag Drop the Stem. Now back to the conversation with Eric. Last year at SAIUS, or the Stockholm International Youth Science Seminar, you were working in Unga Foskara. So could you share about some of your memories from the Noble Week and festivities? Well, the, the week was uh, really, really amazing. I mean, Unga Foskara is uh, a really, really good organization. Uh, they are the ones that are arranging the uh, the national competition for, for scientists where I, where I competed and then where I also worked um, and it's really just, they're doing just things for a good cause, to try to spread awareness about science. Uh, but at science, you are more so kind of rewarding uh, young scientists who have actually done a great job. Uh, and I think that's really a fantastic way uh, of rewarding someone to go to get to go to the, to the, to the Nobel Week. Um, and uh, I definitely think that some of, some of my best memories from there are just meeting everyone uh, from all over the world who are interested in science and have kind of gathered to kind of almost celebrate science in a way. It's almost a celebration of science the whole week in Stockholm, um, and all of the contact that you contacts that you get. And you know, we met for the first time there, and since then, uh, we've kind of created this web of contact uh, that's really global now. Uh, and I definitely would say that if I were to bring one thing from science and the Nobel Week, uh, it would definitely be the context, or maybe the after party, but the context. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to decide. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I totally agree. We had such a great group, and the after party was definitely one of a kind. And I think one of the memories, which is like a once in a lifetime memory, when we are walking out of the concert hall, I don't know if you recall it, when we stepped on the stairs, at that moment, it started snowing. It was so magical. Yeah, I, I actually remember that. It was almost unreal. Like, it was too good to be true. Yes, it was like weather welcomed us <laughs> stepping outside. Yeah. And it, they were also rewarding those accomplished scientists who received the Nobel Prize. And the after party, I think that lasted until 4 a.m. in the morning. So it was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was definitely an experience. It was really fun. I want to touch on this part too. In what ways do you reach out to the youth to promote natural scientists and how do you eventually get students interested in science? I think that's one, how, what I do is basically I work at Unga Forskare for quite a while. So it's the Swedish Society for Young Scientists. Uh, there I was uh, kind of working in a project group to try to get the national competition to be as good as possible. And then, of course, I worked at CUS, and we're promoting, and we're sharing via social media, we're promoting science uh, in kind of every way possible. And we're, I also, I've also talked to a couple of schools uh, and kind of promoting Unga Forskare, uh, but also just talking about science in general, uh, to say, well, how do you write a good scientific report, and what is the general scientific uh, rationale, and what is the methodology about 
and so on. But I think overall, how to get students interested in science is one of the most difficult uh, kind of questions out there. Because science is tough. Science is about learning through failure. It's not learning through kind of getting the reward about something working. Uh, when something works, you don't really learn that much. Well, you learn that the system works. But ultimately, you get more rewards from failure. And that really is kind of a mindset that you have to adapt yourself to. And when once you get adapted to it, it's one of the most humbling and one of the most rewarding mindsets out there. Um, and I think getting students interested in science is more so getting students being curious and being kind of aware of nature and aware of that science is all around us all the time. Uh, because I remember when I first started getting interested in science, it was really just understanding that everything around me is kind of follows some kind of pattern and science is about unweaving that pattern and finding out what's, what's underneath. But I, I still think just talking about science, promoting science, going, doing events, being good science teachers at school, uh, it's just there's just so many ways that you can try to do what you can to get students interested in science. I don't think there's one, just one simple recipe to it. I think it's a collective mindset. Science has so many branches and there are different approaches that you can take. But I 100% agree, investing in science education and, and curiosity-driven research is essentially investing in the future. It's hard to get into science. There's a quote on my school that the root of science is bitter, but the fruits are sweet. So, but I think you're doing a really good thing by, you know, setting a good example for young people and students and being essentially a role model. Yeah, I think it's really important. Like, I have my role models, of course, I have plenty of role models in my life. And I think having a role model is something that, you know, is definitely is as important as, uh, you know, anything else about going to lectures is to have some kind of teacher that's your role model. Uh, so, of course, that's... My, my goal in life is, of course, to be some kind of role model for people, yeah. Yeah, and so talking about role models, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest and why? That's really difficult. Uh, I One of my favorite authors and one of my favorite kind of, what you say, public thinkers is Richard Dawkins. He's this evolutionary biologist from Oxford. Uh, the selfish yeah. gene author? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He wrote The Selfish Gene. Um, and I think I'd like him as a dinner guest, actually. He is really humble about his knowledge. And he's really, he, he's also written some kind of poetry in science. So it's called, uh, it has a book called Unweaving the Rainbow, where he speaks about, well, the poetry in science and the beauty in science, in, especially in Unweaving the Rainbow, knowing what, well, what is, a rainbow is fantastic, but imagine understanding the rainbow. Isn't that equally fantastic or even more fantastic? So I would definitely choose uh, Richard Dawkins, I think. We have an interesting conversation. That would be an amazing dinner and to share and transmit knowledge between each other. That would be real cool. If you had a magic wand or, well, in law terms, if you were at Cesar and could wave it, that magic wand and change something, what would you change in our society? That is a difficult question. Uh, I think one of the things I'm most worried about in society right now is this irrationality and this way of saying that perhaps um, 
in not in, especially not trusting data. Uh, so it, it comes down to, for example, global warming. There's lots of data that supports global warming, but yet there is some ignorance about global warming and people not believing in it, even though there is significant amounts of data. Now the same comes down to uh, kind of all different problems in the world. Uh, it's just about trying to face ignorance and trying to trying to come up with ways with, in, in ways you can make ignorant people more kind of accepting towards change and towards towards changing their mind. So I will definitely, in lack of a better phrase, decrease the ignorance in the world, if that is, if that is uh, a way of phrasing it. Uh, to get more people curious and to get more people willing to change their mind. We are not at it, but I think the best way to achieve that is just to promote science and, you know, be in the general knowledge, promoting those new ideas. And I think the hard thing about it is translating what science has and presenting in a way that it could be understandable for those as well who do not come from a scientific background. Yeah, exactly. I'm just promote education and say that, okay, well, you think in a specific way, but if data was presented to you, would you change your mind and actually try to make people say yes to that question? Yeah, that's good. What is your ultimate goal in life if you are, you know, so focused on talking about the future? My ultimate goal in life is just to be uh, someone that some people look up to. Like, I think that's that would bring me so much happiness and joy to say that uh, to kind of be a mentor to someone uh, doesn't have to be it can be one person but just to say that try to try to educate someone I think that's my greatest passion to, to talk about science and to educate about science uh, and perhaps not even just science but also about you know everything in general to be someone that can just uh, speak and be wise I know that you can't learn to be wise but perhaps uh, through years of experience I may some someday I might become wise enough to be a mentor of someone well, that was a very humble response, but you are on the pathway. It's cool that you have a purpose before yourself, that you are willing to achieve and you are making the essential steps at the moment to get to your goal in the future. And how do you relax and unwind in your free time? I do a couple of things. Uh, another passion I have is definitely training. I think training is good for your body, it's good for your brain, it's good for everything. Apart from that, I really like music. I play guitar and I do that quite frequently. But if I don't like to kind of exercise or play guitar, I, I just reading a book is oh, like that's the ultimate relaxation for me. Yes, absolutely. Training your mind and training your body at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> now here comes the this or that game section so of course uh, just as the name suggests uh, you gotta choose either or so the first one is beach or mountains mountains okay i i kind of had the feeling because of the place you live but that's totally understandable it would be quite cold to to get in the sea yeah <laughs> and uh, cycling or swimming hmm, probably swimming i think it's uh, it's a nice feeling of, of just going swimming or eating out Oh, that is also a trick one. I think cooking, uh, just because you can kind of more choose what you eat and choose what amount you want to eat and so on. <laughs> and you know what kind of ingredients go into your food too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now it's related to Swedish cuisine, meatballs or pickled herring. Oh, it has to be 
meatballs because pickled herring is just not my kind of dish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. When we had the venue in Stockholm, I also voted for the meatballs. I just couldn't get used to the herring kind of concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and last one is casual or formal? Casual, definitely. Uh, a casual setting is, is way more rewarding for me than a formal setting. You need to dress how you want and to speak how you want, uh, not be constrained by, by the norms and the rules of everyone. Yeah, just the outside of the box fashion, <laughs> not yeah, adapting but... to the rules. Well, except if you attend the Nobel Prize, then that's a different scenario. Yeah, I think for the, for events like the Nobel Prize, the formal kind of setting goes with it. I don't think it would be the same if everyone sat in t-shirts. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't create the same effect, of course. And the last question is, what does science mean to you? Personally, science is in everything for me. Um, in, in music, in reading, in poetry, in, in life in general, I think the scientific rationale and the scientific methodology is constantly with me. Um, but for me, science means being able to being able to change your mind if if data is presented to you, and kind of having this open mindedness about the world, never being stern to a certain point, but observing a world that is always changing before your eyes and having a having a mindset that is always changing alongside with it. I think that's definitely what science means to me. Totally. That was a very nice response and does permeate your thinking, your everyday living and how you view life in general. So I think it was a very valuable interview. Congratulations on your prize at Intel and I wish the best for you in your future scientific endeavors and also for the competition coming up in Boston. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. You can find us on Instagram at DrivestamPodcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.